Is your name in a who's who book? Have you found yourself listed as an important and special person? You know, the original Who's Who was published in 1849 by a company in Britain called A&C Black, and it's still in publication 160 years later. In this particular book, the names of important members of parliament, judges, uh, politicians, and uh, other important people in British life is published. Uh, as a result of the British Who's Who, many people have developed their own Who's Who, there are probably who's who of dog breeders or mountaineers or, you know, ping pong players or, or other sorts of, uh, of sports and, uh, and areas of, uh, of expertise. But the original who's who uh, was a very, very important book in the British society, you know, of the late 19th century and early 20th century when people would have their name published. In fact, it's come to the point where the Wall Street Journal, I'm just quoting here from an article on the subject, the Wall Street Journal has said that an entry in Who's Who really puts the stamp on eminence on a modern British life. And the Daily Mail, one of the uh, London uh, newspapers, has described it as Britain's most famous reference book. So I ask the question again, are you in a Who's Who book? In fact, I asked this question of uh, a group one time, and in a group of probably about 150 people, someone put their hand up because their name was in a who's who's book of important scientists. Well, my name, as far as I know, is not in any who's who book. Uh, we're just not that important. Uh, but I want to discuss with you an important point today, and it's this. Your name and my name is in a who's who book. What am I talking about? Let us take our Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 4 and verse 3. Philippians chapter 4, and we're going to notice an important who's who book that is mentioned in Scripture. Turn with me, please, here to the book of Philippians. And we're going to read here in chapter 4 and in verse 3. Paul wrote and said, I urge you also, true companions, uh, companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel with Clement uh, also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. That is the ultimate who's who. And you know what? You can't find a copy of, of it on earth at all because it is in heaven. And God the Father... And Jesus Christ are the ones that decide whose name will be in the book of life. Let's go to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. Amongst the seven churches, this particular church is mentioned as having names written in the book of life. Revelation chapter 3, once again, and starting here in verse 5. It says, He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. So this concurs with the scripture that we read in Philippians, where it says that our names can be written in the book of life. But did you notice? It says it's also possible that it can be blotted out. So this is an important book, if you are truly baptized 
and converted and you are continuing faithful in your life toward God and towards Jesus Christ, you can know that your name is written in the book of life. So where uh, can we find out uh, who those people are that are written there? As I've mentioned, you can't find it written in any book that's on this earth. In fact, I have this, uh, if you might say, uh, image, this mental sort of perception. Uh, you're probably much the same, where you, where you think about certain things and you, and you muse on it and you add to it and you and maybe even have a dream about it. But I have this idea of the day that someone is baptized and the minister lays hands upon them and they receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, that up in heaven in this very, very special room with beautiful uh, curtains and with this large uh, desk. This is a modern uh, lectern. But in old days, they used to have writing desks that were like this, but they would be done in carved mahogany. And you can imagine this big, big book with uh, pages uh, of names on one side and then blank pages on the other and and here an inkwell with a a quill of swan feather coming standing in the inkwell and so it is that an angel comes in now does he have white robes on you know I, I, I won't go into that but just imagine that he opens the book and takes the ink uh, the, the quill from the inkwell and he writes in perfect uh, lettering what they call um, copper plate writing he writes your name in long strokes and when it's finished he takes a blotter and he dries the ink so there's no smudging and then someone mentions another person's name that is to be entered. So he takes the quill again and writes that name. And so it is that our names are entered into the book of life. But, on the other hand, it might be like this. It might be that the angel comes in in a smart suit, sits down at a computer desk, he's got a screen in front of him, and he types in our name. And it's recorded that way. Which do you think sort of fits best of all? You know, I like the first one. A little more sort of form and ceremony to it. But whatever it is, in whichever way God records our name in the book of life, we can be assured that it is there. You know, if we remain faithful and obedient to God's purpose and will, our names will be preserved for the day when Jesus Christ returns to raise his brothers and sisters to eternal life. So I think you and I can understand here at the Feast of Tabernacles why it is so important for us to consider our calling and our response to the fact that Jesus Christ has acted in our lives, that God's calling is there and strong. We have responded, and now here we are, obedient to God by keeping the Feast of Tabernacles. We've traveled from all over the world, from our homes in different parts of the United States or South Africa or Canada, maybe from France or from, from, from Mexico or wherever we've traveled. We've traveled to the Feast of Tabernacles. 
to listen to God's ministers, God's servants, preach to us the message of the wonderful world tomorrow. Already we've been inspired by the messages that we've heard. Already we have captured the vision of us being specifically in God's kingdom, living a way of life that is pleasing to God in a way that we can be useful to him, where we will be given the opportunity to have spirit uh, bodies, uh, perfect minds, uh, never ever putting a foot wrong, saying a wrong word, uh, being offensive in any way, never getting tired, always perfect, even as Jesus Christ and our Heavenly Father are perfect. And so it is that as we look forward to that time when we will be joining with Jesus Christ in co-ruling on this earth, we can think about the importance of this subject of the book of life. So today, I want to discuss with you the names and also the titles of people who have already died and their names are permanently entered into the book of life. We will see that their job descriptions are very specific and more importantly, that there is a specific job description that God is preparing for you and for me. So let's take a little time as we go through some of these wonderful entries in the book of life and see just exactly what the men and the women whose names are permanently recorded there will be doing. Let's first of all turn to Revelation chapter 19 and verse 11. Revelation chapter 19 and verse 11. Notice what it says here. It says, Now I saw heavens, or saw heaven opened, and behold a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Notice verse 16. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Who is that? You know, it's Jesus Christ. And I am sure that his name is the first entry in the book of life. Let's have a look at another scripture, this time in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. Isaiah chapter 9. Let's turn there to Isaiah and chapter 9 and verses 6 and 7. You know, it's not necessary to uh, ask the question, as I already have, of who will be at the top of the list, because we know who it will be. Here in Isaiah 9, verse 6, it says of Jesus Christ, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. When it says Everlasting Father, that's not God the Father. We know that Jesus Christ is not God the Father. The word father there is more like progenitor, the one who gives life. Uh, verse 7, it says, Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. 
upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. And so here we see that Jesus Christ is at the top of the list. Now let us go, if we might, to Matthew chapter 23. We're going to start to realize that under Jesus Christ, who will be King of kings and Lord of lords, there will be a group of other vital leaders in the kingdom of God. In Matthew chapter 23 and in verse 34, notice what it says. Matthew chapter 23 and in verse 34. Therefore, indeed, Christ said, I send you prophets, wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. So we can see here uh, in Matthew 23 and verses 34 and 35 that there is a great list of righteous men from Abel to Zechariah, men and women whose names are permanently recorded in the book of life. Let's become a little more specific, if we might. We notice there that Abel was the first that was mentioned. And we, you remember the story of Abel? Uh, you know, he had this brother Cain. It's interesting, the name Cain means to get. When uh, uh, Eve had her first son, she said, I have gotten or I have got a man child from the Lord. And so his name meant get. And that's the way he lived his life. And it came to the point where he became so jealous of Abel that he murdered him. In fact, in Jude 14, just before we go any further, let's go uh, almost to the end of the Bible, just before the book of Revelation. In a very short uh, book, Jude, that has no chapters, and so we say, when we say Jude 14, we mean, uh, meaning verse 14. Notice it says in Jude 14, Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints. So we know that there are at least ten thousand entries at the time that Jude wrote, and that was two thousand years ago. How many entries are there in that book? Is it in the multiples of tens of thousands? It would appear so. And so we've had some names mentioned already. Abel. Here we have Enoch. He is mentioned mentioned as being one of the righteous ones. So let's move on and uh, go to Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22. This man you will have heard of before. Uh, His name was originally Abram, but it was changed to Abraham. In Genesis chapter 22 and in verse 10, notice what it says. And Abraham stretched out his hand and he took the knife to slay his son. Do you remember the story? An incredible story. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God. Since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. 
Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in the thicket, or in a thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. So we can see here that Abraham was a righteous man. He was tested by God. God wanted to know if Abraham would go go to that final test. You think about it for a moment. Abraham knew how much God hated uh, human sacrifice. Abraham knew that God would, would not require that of him. And yet here was God saying, go and sacrifice your son. Of course, you and I know that there, that's an anti-type of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Our Heavenly Father gave up his son for us. And so Abraham was called upon to do the same thing. I'm sure he had, you know, it, was, it says it was a three-day journey from when he was told by God to do this, to go up to Mount Moriah <clears throat> to sacrifice his son. Can you imagine the number of, of thoughts and explanations and scenarios that Abraham must have had about that particular request by God? He would have thought, no, God's going to uh, provide a, 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 a lamb there for us. Uh, let me see, he wouldn't want me to do this. Um, maybe I misunderstood him. No, I heard him correctly. All sorts of things. I, don't, I, I bet he didn't sleep too well on those three nights on the way up to uh, Mount Moriah. And yet we find that God tested him because he has such an important position for him in the kingdom of God. <clears throat> Let's go to... Uh, Uh, Galatians chapter 3 and verse 6. Galatians chapter 3 and uh, verse 6. You know, at the top of my uh, uh, Bible here, under uh, the um, area of of Galatians 3, it says, The just shall live by faith. And so it was that Abraham was the father of the faithful. Here in Galatians 3 and verse 6, notice what it says. Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness, therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So Abraham was not just the father of the tribes of of Israel, God had a plan for all of mankind. You know, in the London church, we have uh, a great number of people from the Caribbean, from uh, all parts of Africa, uh, that have come into the church. And God has brought them to Britain uh, through the the open door of the the British government over the last uh, 50 years, so that these people can be in Britain and hear the gospel message and come into God's church so that they can become spiritual sons and daughters of Abraham. They are faithful. They are trusting in God. And so that's what Paul meant here. So when we speak about Abraham, we don't need to just think of him being you know, over just Isaac and Jacob and the, and the 12 tribes of Israel. We need to consider that Abraham's faith was recognized by God 
in such a way that he was able to extend the, you might say, reach of Abraham's purpose and destiny so that he would embrace all people of the world. And when Jesus Christ returns, Abraham will be there. And Jesus Christ is going to give him instructions. He's going to ask him, Abraham, I want you to go out and to go to uh, the Philippines. I want you to visit there. I want you to be able to instruct and teach the people on the subject of faith. And then when you've been there, I want you to go on and continue to Taiwan and to Japan and to Korea. Now, they might have new names, those, those uh, countries in, in the world tomorrow. But the people there will hear from Father Abraham because he was a faithful servant of God. Let's notice why we can say this. Let's go to Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13 and verse 28. And notice what Jesus Christ actually had to say here. You know, this is, this is exciting. When I, when I first came into God's church and I heard at the Feast of Tabernacles that Jesus Christ would establish his government on this earth and that he would be using men and women who were faithful in this, on this uh, earth, in this age, then I started to realize this is for real. This is very, very uh, clearly going to occur and happen. You know, I like to put it this way. Jesus Christ is going to establish his government on the earth no matter what any human being says, thinks, or believes at this time. Not only is Jesus Christ going to establish his government on the earth, he has positions and places set aside for those who have proved themselves to be faithful. And Abraham is such a person. Notice here in Luke chapter 13 and in verse 28. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see, God said, Christ said, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and you yourselves thrust out. Now, he wasn't talking to us. He was talking to the scribes and the Pharisees. But did you notice that? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob and all the prophets, not just the major prophets, not just Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, but also the minor prophets and even prophets that we've probably not even heard about. So this is exciting. Men and women who trusted in God, believed in him, it says in Hebrews chapter 11, that some were even sawn asunder. Some went through great trials and scourgings. The the uh, religious authorities of the day didn't like God's prophets preaching the truth, telling them that they were not righteous, and warning Israel and Judah of what would come upon them. Now, you do think about one prophet by the name of Jonah, and he went and prophesied to the Assyrians, and what did they do? They repented. What about the Queen of Sheba? She heard about Solomon's greatness. And it says that she will come up in the great white throne judgment, you know, after the millennium. And you'll hear more about that on the last great day. But there are many, many men and women who will be used by Jesus Christ. They will be part of the first resurrection. Let's have a look, if we can now, at uh, 
uh, the rest of um, this passage here in verse 29. It says, Then they will come from the east and the west, from the north and the south, and sit down in the kingdom of God. And indeed there are, those, uh, there are last who will be first, and there are first who will be last. On that very day, some Pharisees came saying to him, Get out and depart from here, for Herod wants to kill you. Well, you know, Jesus Christ prophesied that there would come a time when we will be told to get out because the religious and the civil authorities will want to kill us. And so we've got to understand that we are not of this world. You know, the very fact that you are sitting where you are at this time away from your home is a testimony. It's a testimony to the fact that you believe that the kingdom of God is coming and that you specifically want to have a part to play in it. In fact, if you think about it, the opportunities, you know, I I remember one time I thought to myself, yeah, all the good jobs have gone. (laughs) No, that's not true. God certainly is going to place Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the prophets uh, in important positions, but the opportunities that exist for people to rule and co-rule in the kingdom of God are simply amazing. So let's move on. For the next piece of the uh, kingdom of God jigsaw, we go to the principle of church and state being in harmony in God's kingdom. Uh, Right now we have in most uh, constitutions the separation of church and state. But you know what? In the kingdom of God, we will be kings and priests. Kings ruling over administrative, uh, secular, not so much secular, but... uh, you know, the, the, functional, the functions of government, kings and priests involved in religion, involved in the worship of God, involved in taking the commandments of God and bringing them together so that the kings and the priests make sure that there's not a separation of church and state as we have today. Let's go to Matthew chapter 16, another scripture. And you notice so far these scriptures that I'm giving to you here are from the New Testament about Old Testament personalities. Well, here we have another one here in Matthew chapter 16 and in verse 27. It says, For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. You know, one of the big things that uh, uh, you might say modern-day Uh, Christians love to say is you will not be saved by your works and of course they're right we will not be saved by our works but you know what we will be rewarded according to our works you know we're not saved by our works we're saved by the life of Jesus Christ being lived in us we are saved we are under grace we teach that we don't teach salvation by works. If, you, if someone comes to you and says, oh, yeah, the living church of God teaches salvation by works, you will say to them very, very clearly, we do not teach that. We teach that we are saved by the, uh, by the life of Christ, that we are justified by his blood, and we are under grace. However, we will be rewarded according to our works. Verse 28, notice what it says. Assuredly, I say to you, uh, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man 
coming in his kingdom. What was he talking about? Well, you actually need to go into the next chapter. Chapter 17, verse 1, is just a continuation of what we've read at the end of verse of chapter 16. Now, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. I've always asked myself the question, was this during the Feast of Tabernacles? that they would can think about and consider tabernacles being built. Let's read on. Verse three, uh, 5. Sorry. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. You know, it's interesting that Moses and Elijah should be mentioned. Why? Well, Moses was a civil administrator. He was responsible after having been brought up in the, uh, the family of Pharaoh in Egypt. He would have learned a great deal about administration. Uh, Josephus tells us that he was a great military general, that he led a campaign against the Ethiopians and was successful. And as a part of, you might say, the booty or the, uh, the spoils of war, now, he was given the, uh, the uh, daughter of the, of the Ethiopian king, and that's the one that is spoken of by Miriam and Aaron. Now, of course, we know at 40 years of age he was uh, banished, and, uh, and he fled, actually. He wasn't so much banished. He fled from the Egyptians and was 40 years in the wilderness taking care of Jethro's sheep. But you know what? He was a civil administrator. Now, in the last 40 years of his life, yes, God used him greatly not just to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt, but to teach and administer the law of God. So you know that you might say the two parts of his life, the administrative side and the, uh, the side which involved the teaching of the law of God, they came together, just as it will be in the kingdom of God. Well, what about Elijah? He was mentioned here. Well, you know, Elijah was involved in the uh, you might say, warning of the children of Israel as they had gone into idolatry uh, under uh, Ahab and Jezebel. So he was charged with more of a, a religious um, function of teaching and, and warning the people of Israel. So they're going to certainly have important positions in the kingdom of God. Moses with his responsibilities, Elijah with his Let's move on a little further, this time to uh, <clears throat> Exodus chapter 32. What was Moses' role? He was an administrator, as we've said. So we need to read a little bit about Moses and what he was uh, particularly prepared and trained for by going to, Ezekiel, uh, to Exodus, sorry, Exodus chapter 32. Exodus 32, and we're going to start here in verse 7 of Exodus 32. Notice what it says. It says, And the Lord said to Moses, Go, get down, for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. 
They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made themselves a molded calf and worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and indeed it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, and I will make you of you a great nation. Wow! Imagine, Moses thought to himself, I get to be the leader of a great nation. I guess I'm a descendant of Abraham, so God could still fulfill his promises, but through me. And it'll be my people that will be a great nation. But notice what happened. Verse 11. Then Moses pleaded with the Lord his God and said, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians speak and say he brought them out to harm them and to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce wrath, Moses prayed to God, and relent from this harm to your people. Remember, Moses said, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have spoken of I give to your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever. Do you know what the Bible says of Moses? He was a meek man. Now, the word meek doesn't mean weak. The word meek means teachable, as Mr. Armstrong used to say, but more importantly, a meek person looks toward God to fulfill his promises, and you'll notice that Moses did not allow himself to be caught up in a vanity trip here and to think that he could and should be something great. He reminded God that it was going to be through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that the blessings would come upon his descendants. Notice in Exodus 33 and verse 11. You know, I just think that example there is is a wonderful uh, teaching example to each one of us, that we are nothing. And, you know, you're going to have opportunities in life uh, and tests where you will think that you are something and someone. And God will allow those things to come along to see if we are going to be faithful uh, to his uh, promises and obedient to him. Notice here in Exodus 33 and verse 11. So the Lord spoke to Moses face to face, and a man as a man speaks to his friend. And he would return to the camp, but his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, did not depart from the tabernacle. Moses' relationship with with God, and this was Jesus Christ, the God of the Old Testament, was that of a friend he could talk face to face with. Now, I want you, if you can, to take that concept of talking with Jesus Christ face to face and think about your role in the kingdom. Is it possible that when you are administering a a town or a city or an aspect of the kingdom of God, that Jesus Christ comes to visit and he walks up to you and he speaks specifically to you? He's not talking to other people, he's speaking to you. And he says, well, how are things going here, John? Or whatever your new name will be in the kingdom of God. Well, they're fine, sir. 
we're, we're working on this new hydroelectric, hydroelectric scheme um, and we feel that we're going to be able to generate enough electricity uh, to provide power for 30,000 inhabitants in this, uh, in this uh, area, in this region. Okay, that's looking very good, but that's electricity. But how are things going with the people? They're going well. We had a, a wonderful Sabbath uh, last week. Uh, the, the, um, I was going to say the, the church, but <laughs> the building, whatever we're going to call the buildings in the, in the world tomorrow, it was filled to overflowing. And uh, we um, uh, have a very, very good team here. We've got uh, a, a fine group of, of people who have come through the tribulation. Uh, they've been humbled, and they're eager to learn the truth. Well, that's good. That's good, John. So uh, do you have anything that uh, I can help you with? Imagine, how would you go if Jesus Christ himself came to you, came to your town, came to your city, and spoke to you that way? It's, that's what the world tomorrow is all about. That's what the kingdom of God is all about. It's a very, very real thing that's going to be happening in our own lives. So let's now come to uh, Elijah. We um, just covered Moses there and how God worked with him. But now let's go to uh, 1 Kings chapter 17. 1 Kings chapter 17. <clears throat> Excuse me while I just take a little water. First Kings chapter 17. <clears throat> and in verse 17. This is talking about Elijah. It says, Now it happened after these things that the son of the woman who owned the house, this is the story of where Elijah went to visit the, uh, the widow of, of, of uh, Zarephath, and uh, she had a, a little child. Um, uh, there was a, a drought in the land because, well, Elijah had uh, said that it was not to rain for three and a half years. And so here she was. She was about to have her last meal with her son and die. Uh, and, and Elijah came and uh, she made uh, some little cakes for uh, him. In verse 17, it says, Now it happened after these things that the son of the woman who owned the house became sick. And his sickness was so serious that there was no breath left in him. So she, she said to Elijah, What have I to do with you, O man of God? Have you come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to kill my son? He said to her, Give me your son. So he took him out of her arms and carried him to the upper room where he was staying and laid him on his own bed. Then he cried out to the Lord and said, O Lord my God, have you also brought tragedy on the widow that, with whom I lodge by killing her son? And he stretched himself out on the child three times and cried out to the Lord and said, O Lord my God, I pray, let this child's soul or spirit come back to him. Then the Lord heard the voice of Elijah and the soul of the child came back to him and he revived. You know, this man had total faith and total commitment to God's way and God's truth. There are very few men and women who have burned for God's truth like Elijah did. It is not to be found in other churches, but in God's church today, we hope and we believe that the spirit of Elijah will be strong within God's people and God's church. And so when you get into God's kingdom, when you are there with Jesus Christ ruling and administering God's government, 
There are going to be times where you're going to have the faith that comes from the fact that you're no longer a human being, faithless, weak, doubting, all the troubles that we have at this time as as Christians. You're going to have the faith to perform miracles. You know, initially, as we come out of the Great Tribulation, there are going to be people terribly sick. Imagine the number of people that are going to be affected by um, uh, nuclear uh, fallout. They'll have uh, radiation disease. Imagine being able to go up to them, as you will, because you will be a, a priest of God, lay your hands upon people and see their skin that was all blemished and pockmarked and and eaten up by radiation just come back like a new skin people who will be coughing and and, uh, people who will be stricken with uh, chronic disease that you will be able to heal even as Elijah did here at that time let's go to 1 Samuel chapter 18 1 Samuel chapter 18 this is An important principle here for us to understand as we uh, prepare for rulership in God's kingdom. 1 Samuel chapter 18 and in verse 17. This is where Saul uh, came to David and said, Here is my uh, my older daughter, uh, Merab. I will give give her to you as a wife. Only be valiant for me. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, let my hand not be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. So David said to Saul, who am I? And what is my life for my father's family in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king? He said, I'm, no, I'm nobody. I'm not a special person. But it happened at the time that Merab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, that she was given to Adriel, the, uh, the Maholophite, as a wife. Now, Michal, Saul's daughter, loved David, and they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. So Saul gave Michal to, to David. But isn't this a, an amazing example of David's humility? Uh, you know, he was trusting in God and not in Saul or not in other men. And, you know, that was the exact opposite of King Saul, who at one time, it says, was small in his own eyes, but then became very great. Let me explain something. God cannot allow any of us to be in his kingdom if it's going to go to our head. If God sees that we are going to misuse and abuse the authority that he gives us, we will not be in his kingdom. And so you're probably going through trials and tests now, or you've been through trials or tests, or you will go through trials or tests to see where your heart is. Do you remember what God said of Abraham? He said, now I know that he will keep my commandments. Of Moses, he said, this is my friend. Of David, a man after God's own heart. So we can know that Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the prophets, uh, Moses and Elijah, and now here David, are going to be in God's kingdoms. Why? Because with David there was no compromise, no syncretism, and no spiritual infidelity with God and Jesus Christ. In God's kingdom, this man is going to be used by him for true spiritual education. 
Let's go on and read a little more about David here in Jeremiah chapter 30. Jeremiah chapter 30. So we know that these men, and of course, you're like me. You read the Bible and you think, wow, these, these, were, these were just wonderful people. Uh, they never had any wrong attitudes. Uh, you know, <laughs> it's, it's a little bit like some of those old movies that were made in the 50s and the 60s, the, the religious movies, where like Ben-Hur and, and, and the other ones where everyone got around and they were all in lovely capes and, and, and they all had looks on their face like this. And there must have been a constant angelic orchestra playing that beautiful music. As, as, as all of these very religious and righteous people looked up into heaven. No, it wasn't like that. It was like you and me. They were normal people with normal problems, normal hopes and ambitions, normal disappointments and all of the things that happened to us. It says of Elijah there in, in, in the book of James, he was a man like us with all the passions that we've got. You see, I don't know what it is, but religious people try to create this religious uh, concept where everyone is so very religious. Where in reality, the people of the Bible were normal people like you and me. They went through trials like we did, like we do. And they got discouraged and disappointed. And there are other times where they were faithful and zealous for what they believed, stood up for what they believed. And we have to be the same. God is watching us to see how we will be. Jeremiah chapter 30. Jeremiah chapter 30. And uh, <clears throat> we're going to uh, read here. Jeremiah chapter 30, if you're there, in verse 7. It says, Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it, and it is the time of Jacob's trouble. But he, that is Jacob, shall be saved out of it. For it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from your neck, and will burst your bonds. Foreigners shall no more enslave them, but they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king. So if Jesus Christ is king of kings, who's David? He's the king over Israel. And you and I will be given rulership, maybe at a smaller level, uh, maybe at, at just a level initially that we can handle. Maybe, you know, you know, some people say to me, and I've actually had people say this, they've said, I don't want to be ruling in the kingdom of God. I don't want to rule. I just want to be there. I'll do anything. I'll be a doorkeeper. Well, you know, if you think about it for a moment, God is not going to give you more than you are capable or able of handling. But you know what? It's a thousand years. Don't think that you're going to you know, stand opening doors for people for a thousand years. God wants us to grow. God wants us to learn. God wants us to achieve. God is a great God of, of enterprise and Big, big-mindedness. And God wants us to share in that. Don't be timid. Don't, don't sort of think to yourself, oh, yeah, but I'm just nobody. I'm just, I'm just nothing. I'm, I'm just happy to... No, that's, that's a false humility. Let me explain what I mean. You know, when a person 
is all worried about themselves. They become one of two things. They become very, very proud and, and arrogant and, and, you know, force their will on other people. Or they become very insignificant and, and uh, you know, self-conscious and self-aware and self-abasing. Neither of those ways are right. When we learn to give and be concerned about others and think about others, we get our mind off ourselves, and we start to think about helping and serving others. And so it's not important what position we've got. It's not important how important we are because we are consumed with the welfare and the success of other people. Hey, mums... If you've got one, two, three, or more children, you know what I'm talking about. Mothers are committed to the success of their children. Fathers, you too have a role to play in, in providing education, leadership, instruction, and direction for your children. Guess what? God the Father has children, and we are they. We are the children of God, and God wants us to succeed. He wants us to grow in ability and capability. Now, it's not a, mat- about, it's not a matter of talent or, or, you know, how wise we are in our own eyes. It's about God's plan for all of mankind and our part and our role that we're going to be playing in it in the kingdom of God. Ezekiel chapter 34, another scripture here regarding David. Ezekiel chapter 34. Okay, let's turn here. Another promise about David. Ezekiel 34 verse 22. It says, Therefore I will save my flock, and they shall no longer be a prey, and I will judge between sheep and sheep. I will establish one shepherd over them, and he shall feed them, my servant David. Hey, isn't that interesting? What did David do when he was a young boy? He was a shepherd. It says that he saved his sheep from the jaws of a lion. And so David knows what it is to take care of sheep. And your minister in your church is your shepherd, under the good shepherd. Jesus Christ is the good shepherd. Dr. Meredith is, you might say, the presiding evangelist, which means that he is the overall shepherd physically for, for God's people at this time. But in the kingdom, David will be the one charged with that responsibility. Notice what it says, My servant David, he shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David, a prince among them, I, the Lord, have spoken. So David will be a shepherd, a prince. He's going to be an example to people. I am looking forward to hearing some sermons from David. Wouldn't you like to be in that at a feast of tabernacles in the kingdom of God? And now for the main sermon... God's servant, prince and shepherd, King David. (laughs) And he will come out and he'll stand and he'll tell us the stories of his life. And uh, he will talk about the plan that he has for 
the whole of the development of Israel. Uh, just an amazing thing to look forward to. Who else is going to be in the kingdom? Let's go to Matthew chapter 19, verse 27. Matthew chapter 19. And verse 27. You know, so far, all of the uh, people in the kingdom of God that we've spoken about, Abel and and Abraham and uh, Moses and David, and we didn't mention Noah, uh, he'll be there as well. Uh, They're all from the Old Testament. But look, there's good news here for those of us from the New Testament, New Covenant time. In Matthew chapter 19 and verse 27, uh, then Peter answered and said to him, See, we have left all and followed you, therefore what shall we have? (laughs) What's the reward? So Jesus said to them, Assuredly I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. This is one of my favorite scriptures. Do you know why? Because it puts to absolute nonsensical foolishness the concept that people have. And you'll come across them and they'll say, Oh, no, no, the, the children of Israel, the 12 tribes and you know, the, the lost 10 tribes were lost and they disappeared in the sands of the desert. No. Jesus Christ said that when he comes back in the regeneration, the 12 apostles will rule over the 12 tribes of Israel. That means that somewhere, someplace on this earth, at this time, Jesus Christ and God the Father have an absolute and certain and clear knowledge of where the 12 tribes are. People say, yeah, but they've intermarried with other people. Okay, that's God's problem. Certainly. Not everyone is going to be absolutely pure in their, in their racial sort of integrity. But as far as God is concerned, he has maintained an identity with his people. And you know what? You're going to have an opportunity to teach those people. Maybe you have got some Norwegian uh, heritage and background. Does that mean that God might, t- might take you back to the, to the tribe of Benjamin? Uh, that we believe that the, the, the people of Norway are from. Uh, maybe you're a really good, of good English stock, and God will have you administer the law in, amongst Ephraim, or Manasseh, or Holland, if you are Dutch and therefore descended from the people of Zebulun. You know, there are many, many people that are living in the United States, Australia, Canada, who have come from other, tr- others, other tribes of Israel. But, and as I've mentioned already, we've got people living in the United States, Australia. Uh, I know the Melbourne church is made up of many different nationalities because God is training those people to go back to be rulers over those people in the kingdom of God. So this is exciting, just going through these things and, and understanding uh, who has all of these responsibilities. So let's think a a little for a moment about the who's who book because the book of life is where your name is written at this time. The rest of the who's who people uh, that we could go to that are not written specifically in the Bible because so far the ones I've I've read to you are specifically from the Bible. But there are uh, other people that we can apply the same vital principle to who will be planning for rulership. And what is that plan for rulership? Here it is. 
when you endure, succeed, and strive for all that is God's purpose and will, you will be prepared for what God is training you for. Your life is in God's hands, and what may seem to be a coincidence or a chance is most probably not. Think about it for a moment. God does provide you with opportunities. Maybe a move with your employment from one city to the next means that you change congregations. And that there, if you follow through and take that opportunity, it will mean that there will be new learning curves for you in the new congregation. You know, you think about it. God is, uh, is planning a whole work for, well, certainly tens of thousands of saints that we read about. So what's your specific goal? What's your specific purpose? What, what is God training and preparing you for? You know, you can know. If you think back over the years that you've been in God's church, even probably before that, you've had opportunities given to you and you've taken them. Maybe when you were, you know, in, 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 at college age or university uh, age, you took a particular university course that took you in a particular direction and that has led to a very good uh, opportunity for you to work in, in your area of expertise. But a recession comes along and you lose your job. Disaster? Not at all. Opportunity. That's what it is. Opportunity sometimes to change your career. Maybe you've been uh, retrenched or, or, or um, laid off from a company. Are you going to go, oh, no, I've got no future? No. Say to yourself and, and say to God, here's a new opportunity for me. You know, I, I believe very much in the adage, as one door closes, another door opens. So be on the lookout for God working in your life to train you for rulership in the kingdom. Even some disasters, a sickness, for example, that you've, you've uh, come into that has caused you to develop patience and kindness and, and, and sympathy uh, that you've not had before. All of these things are God's doing. Yes, he, we know that he's not a fatalist, fatalist. He doesn't guide and direct, you know, does he know that I'm going to put my glasses on now and then take them off? No. Now, that's, that's not what God does in our lives. What God does for us is to train us specifically for his position, our position in his kingdom. Let me show you what I mean. Let's go back to Malachi chapter 4, Old Testament, last book. Malachi, actually chapter 3, Malachi chapter 3, verse 17. It says, they shall be mine. These are the people that God is going to put in his kingdom. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I make them my jewels. What are you? Are you a diamond or a sapphire? Some might say I'm a carbuncle (laughs) or a a jasper uh, or a, or a, um, a sapphire. Um, but whatever it is, God considers us to be jewels. And I will spare them, he says, as a man spares his own son who serves him. Then you shall again discern between the righteous and the wicked. That's going to be our job. Between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. So God is preparing us to be jewels in a crown. 
and he's preparing a crown just for you. And that crown will have specific sapphires, diamonds, pearls, rubies uh, set in the crown that will, when it is put on your head, will be a description of your role and your position in the kingdom. So are you a good letter writer? Then see if you can ask your minister if you can write the cards or organize the cards to be sent to those who are sick or elderly or a church area that's going through a tough time. Are you a good listener? Well, then listen and show empathy. You know, God has a wonderful training program set out for each one of us. Are you ready? Are you ready for that time? Well, then let's make sure that we use this opportunity at the Feast of Tabernacles to exercise those gifts of God's Spirit that we will be using in the kingdom of God. Think about the people when you come into the hall and the auditorium and you take your your seat. Think about the people that might need the seat you're in. Now, already probably where you're meeting, uh, there are chairs that have been set aside for the choir, uh, set aside for the families, uh, set aside for these people and those people. Please respect that. And if you don't uh, uh, think you've got a good uh, seating position, then just understand that not everything goes our way all the time. Be grateful for what God has done. Be grateful for the fact that the ministers who have prepared their sermonettes, their sermons for this Feast of Tabernacles have been specifically prepared for you. That the minister who was preparing the sermons that you've heard, he didn't know your needs, but God did. And probably put it in his mind to have something just for you. And because you've prayed this morning that you would be inspired by the messages that you would hear, so it has been. I certainly love the Feast of Tabernacles for what it can bring to our children and our grandchildren. You know, this year we're going to be in Australia for the Feast of Tabernacles, back with our family. We've not been together as a family for a feast in nine years. And so we've been planning for and thinking about this time for a long time. And what about you? Have you planned and prepared for this Feast of Tabernacles? I'm sure you have. And so I'd like to take this opportunity of wishing you a very happy Feast of Tabernacles, that you might use this time to really, really plan and prepare for your role in the kingdom of God when you will be given a position of great opportunity to serve and to give to others. Make sure that you use this time now and be ready to serve and to give.